You're listening to There Auto Be a Law, the Center for Auto Safety podcast with Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by me, Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has worked to make cars safer. Good morning. (laughs) (laughs) Listeners, we do not have a new guest. We do not have a special host. That is Fred Perkins. He's been uh, practicing to be a blues singer. And so his voice has gotten very deep and bassy. I've been an engineer so long. It all (laughs) looks like a rivet to me. (laughs) Yeah. Very white. Yeah. (laughs) You sold your soul down at the... uh, Down at the SAE bar. (laughs) All right, enough of that nonsense. Uh, listeners, if you hear the sounds of jackhammers in the background, it's uh, unfortunately people are jackhammering the side of my building right now, which is not fun. But that's not what we're here to talk about. Are we, Michael? No. No. We're here to talk about, I don't know, let's see, how do we start off? I mean, I think we have to start off with the most important auto safety thing that's coming up this weekend, okay, that everyone's concerned about, the F1 Grand Prix in Las Vegas. I mean, they're running at night. It's going to be cold. Those cars are not designed for that. those temperatures. I mean, the humanity. I'm just not into car racing in any form or fashion. So I, I, I can't even. I know that people think F1 is a lot cooler than NASCAR. but uh, And it's much more popular overseas. But that is the extent of my knowledge. Okay. It doesn't go in a big circle. Well, I thought that you were going to be talking about the Thanksgiving Day Parade in New York. Wait, big, there's a parade here? Yeah, it's a big event over the weekend, isn't it? Oh, that's next week. Am I off? I guess You're I'm off. off. By week. Yeah. I mean, but hey, that voice makes up for it. That's a side effect of having a low voice. Oh, yeah. Okay. So um, I, I didn't want to start off this way, folks. I really didn't. But, you know, cruise keeps cruising. Um, so we mentioned last week, I think I mentioned that I, I think... Kyle, the CEO of GM Cruise, is kind of on a uh, corporate death watch. Uh, you know, two months ago, he's like, if anyone reacts poorly to what we do, they're just being sensationalistic. Then they dragged a human underneath their car and tried to pretend it didn't happen, lied to regulators about it, edited video, got caught. And they're like, whoa, we're going to take a pause and like uh, try and rebuild the public's trust, which Michael's pointed out. I don't think the public ever trusted you. And now GM, their corporate overlord, is like, you know what? We don't trust you. So GM has put in their executive vice president of legal and policy, Craig Glidden, uh, to oversee Cruz. Now I'm looking at this going, okay, Craig Glidden, he's a lawyer, but maybe he's one of these like engineer lawyers. Maybe he's got something to help out. No, he is strictly, I'm your daddy now. I am a legal and policy guy. I couldn't tell you a sprocket from a faucet. I am here to make sure we are not criminals. It's fascinating. Well, you know, what's interesting about this to me is that for years, decades, maybe a century, GM and the other companies have been putting out cars that are unsafe, but they've been always able to transfer the blame to the drivers. Say, well, it wasn't my fault that you had a speedometer that said you can go 150 miles an hour. Uh, you know, it's just a choice that you made. One of the interesting things about Cruise is that GM is now having to confront the fact that they are responsible for the liability associated with the crap they're putting out. It's really a, a, a turnaround, I think, an unanticipated legal structure that they probably don't like very much. Michael, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, they they've actually stopped running vehicles at all it seems they're they've paused their driverless operations even with the safety driver now which is a new event so they are really apparently really looking at from the top down they've hired exponent which is a um group of engineers that does a lot of work on the defense side of product liability cases and does a lot of really in-depth analysis i think they've looked at some of the Maybe the ARC airbag stuff, some of the um, Hyundai issue, Hyundai and Kia fire issues that we've seen, they get a lot of business from the auto industry looking deeply into the engineering problems behind some of these crashes and events that we see. And 
So they're really, really looking at it closely. This is something that, um, you know, this is not quite the same, but a similar to the incident that brought Mary Barra into GM in the first place, which was the ignition switch issues and the, and the recalls there. And, you know, in that case, as, as Fred alluded to, you know, they, they, they tended on a engineer and, you know, pretended not to have a lot of knowledge of the situation as a corporate entity, but in the end, you know, they got into a lot of trouble there. Um, and I know that Mary is very concerned about what's going on here. Um, mainly to do with the amount of money they've sunk into it and the fact that she's seen this before. Um, and probably understands that, you know, they really need to go back and, and connect some dots before they move forward. I think if you're any company, no matter what you make, what product or service, and all of a sudden lawyers are overseeing everything you do, that's a, that's never a good sign for your business's long-term health. I don't know of other companies that do well with that, I think. The only thing I can think of is Procter and Gas. Oh, no, it was a uh, Pacific Gas and Electric. I think at one point they had a lawyer step in and they had to pay billions and billions of dollars for polluting water. But I don't know. Uh, but even more troubling than that, uh, we have an article from TechCrunch we've linked to. And quoting from the very end of the article, it says, A survey that blind, an anonymous forum for verified employees conducted for TechCrunch, found that half of cruise employees are either not at all confident or only slightly confident in Cruise's safety culture. Over three quarters of the 136 Cruise employees surveyed from November 7th to the 8th said they believed Cruise was trying to scale too quickly. Forget about rebuilding public trust. If your own employees are like, I think we're creating bad things, that's... I, I, that's yeah, just that kind of says it all right there. I mean, there's... I mean, that that... You know, that survey happened after the incident happened. Um, it would be interesting to see what it would have been like before the incident. Uh, maybe who knows how it would have changed. But that's a, such a significant amount of employees standing there saying we are putting this stuff out there too fast, um, and which presumably because it's not safe enough yet. See, that's one of the problems with hiring engineers. They They tend to look <laughs> at facts. That's a... It's a professional liability we've all got. Oh, my God. Yeah, we're going to get into a uh, a problem with an engineer looking into to facts and safety in a minute. Uh, but we're just going to wrap up Cruise real quick. Uh, the Intercept, uh, they got some internal uh, messages and emails at Cruise. Uh, and quoting from an article in The Intercept, even before its public relation crisis of recent weeks, i.e. dragging a human, uh, previously unreported internal materials such as chat logs show Cruise has known internally about two pressing safety issues. Driverless Cruise cars struggle to detect large holes in the road and have so much trouble recognizing children in certain scenarios that they risk hitting them. What? Like, how do you, you can't find a large hole in the road? Yeah, yeah. Humans are terrible drivers. Come on. Yeah, I think there was an incident where they basically pulled right up to some maintenance workers in a hole and they were actively having to wave flags at the vehicle to prevent it from going any further and getting stuck in the hole um, or injuring anyone. So that's clearly a problem there. I mean, I don't know if it points to anything specific if they're not recognizing, you know, both of those are small objects in front of the vehicle that are relatively difficult to detect uh i think we'll talk later about um or you know we about how cruise is struggling to detect children um and so that's a you know that's a that's a pretty big concern um and it's one of many 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 hazards that is small and appear around the vehicle that that humans have to notice and take notice of to avoid crashes so it's, you know, it's it's not like manholes are some new thing that's appearing in roads across America. It's something that should be in their software, something they should expect, and something they should be able to drive safely around. There's two things that you should have in a safety culture that are really important. One is you need to have a clear channel between the people who are understanding the problem to the executive who's in charge. Uh, apparently, that was not done at Cruise. It's, it's now being imposed on crews by GM. The other thing that's really important to have is uh, what's called a non-advocate review 
of the safety design. And that means that you bring in people who have no vested interest in the success of the program to take a look at the entire safety apparatus and the safety design to see whether or not it passes muster. Uh, the a problem in a lot of companies is that they hire and they incentivize people to put this stuff out the door as quickly as possible. So there's no pushback on people who are trying to ram through unsafe designs. So uh, just as a helpful hint to crews, do these two things. Put a non-advocate review as an intrinsic part of your safety design and safety management system, as well as a direct channel up to the CEO by somebody who is not reporting to the CEO because you don't want their salary and their future challenged by bad information they might have to bring forward. Yeah, and I think ideally that would be, you know, an independent group or that was designed for that purpose of the auto industry. It could be, you know, we've talked about some similar things like um, we spoke with the insurance group, the insurance folks who were pushing the idea that um, they're creating software to create, you know, a structure for a safety case that these autonomous vehicles need to pass before they can be deployed. Um, and building a safety case like that with a secondary party overseeing, you know, the steps you have to meet is is something that's also similar to that process. It basically brings an independent review in before you can deploy these things to the public. And, you know, I don't think anyone can look back and say that that wouldn't have helped in this situation. Uh, shouldn't NHTSA and groups like that be reviewing these things before they get out to the public? Well, NHTSA only has the authority at this point to basically accept the manufacturer's word when it comes to certifying to federal motor vehicle safety standards and things like that. Um, there are plans in the future over at NHTSA for some sort of co-op, more cooperative um, evaluation function, I believe. Uh, I think they're going to propose something called the AV STEP program that, that has a little more cooperation between the agency and the manufacturers. But ultimately, you know, if I don't know that NHTSA has the technical ability to do those types of evaluations at this point, and having an independent monitor who does is going to be critical. So um, either Congress needs to step up and get NHTSA a lot more money to hire, you know, four hundred thousand uh, dollar software engineers and the the other really expensive folks who don't necessarily fall under government. Uh, salary structure, um, they're going to need to get those types of folks in to do this work. And, um, you know, they're, they are trying to do so. They are actively building the, um, technical abilities of the agency to evaluate this type of thing. But it, <clears throat> it's being done now. And, you know, who knows what's going to happen in the future since there's an election coming up and politics always tend to screw up um NHTSA's advances in many areas so we will that is kind of a wait and see what happens on that end but that is exactly the business model for underwriters laboratory and organizations that do ISO certification that's just exactly what they do they take the standard and they provide an independent overview of what the company's uh participation is in whatever thing they're auditing like safety like product design. There's a lot of different standards that are out there, but that industry exists. It's well populated. People know how to do it. It's just a question of uh, industry adopting that practice and letting it fly. Wow. So if you're uh, an employee at Cruise, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, reach out, contact at autosafety.org and uh, let us know how safe you think your uh, work environment is. Yeah, I love how <laughs> Anthony curious. just requests that people violate <laughs> non-disclosure agreements. Hey, I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> what do I, I – come on. Like a lot of NDAs, are, how enforceable are they? Okay, look, uh, you know, go ahead and do this. You, you responded to an anonymous quote-unquote survey on some, you know, website. You know, we're better than some website. We're the Center for Auto Safety. And you can also write in and tell us how much you love Fred Perkins' voice this week. Uh, and then uh, donate. Now let's move on to uh, our friends at the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety. A lot of great stuff out of these guys this week. Tons and tons of great stuff. 
Um, they've got some good articles. Let's see. One is uh, large pickups offer strong side protection, but falter in backseat safety. Uh, the Ram 1500 Crew Cab, Ford F-150 Crew Cab, and Toyota Tundra Crew Cab, all 2023 models, earn good readings in the IIHS updated side crash test that may be Nitsus's deal. While the 2023 Chevy Silverado 1500 Crew Cab is rated acceptable. However, however, in the updated moderate overlap front crash test, which now emphasizes backseat safety, only the Tundra manages a marginal rating. Everyone else rated poor. So don't sit in the back seat of an extended crew cab. What the hell is a crew cab? That's basically <laughs> when you add on a, a add some seats behind the, the the front seats and you're you know, you turn well really you're either turning a vehicle into a uh truck that can carry your crew to wherever you're going to work yeah it's, it's a six pass six passenger pickup basically i think they're mostly used now to carry you know kids soccer practice and things like that though which makes a lot less sense um you know we, we've talked about people's vehicle choices and how some are buying giant crew cabs so they can look like a big man as they drive to their office job um, and then put their kids in the back on the way to soccer practice on the weekends and there's no real need to have a vehicle that large consuming that much gas with the safety concerns around it um for that purpose and so you know here's just another problem with a company basically lengthening a truck or shortening the bed and sticking passenger seating in there it's it's not a great you know it just it's, it's it hasn't been something that's been developed over a long period of time they're basically just stuffing some passenger seating onto a pickup chassis um and i don't know it, it, this is a problem not just in pickups for sure i mean ever since ihs has started putting um dummies in the back seats which is something NHTSA still needs to do they have continually found that the um performance in, in the rear seats the safety performance of the systems there the seat belts and other things just aren't working um, and that's primarily because, you know, NHTSA has simply hasn't required the rear seats to be tested for safety in its in-cap programs or, you know, in its regulations now for many years. It's just been kind of assumed that the rear seat is a safe place and it's not. Okay, so I'm going to I'm going to rant here just a little bit. No. Um, yeah, it's very unusual <laughs> for me. I know. But here it comes. Um we talked about regulations and standards earlier, and one of the things we talked about over the last couple of weeks is something called the minimal risk condition, which is a, a misnomer, but it's uh, established in a document called SAE J3016, which anybody can download if they want to do that. Hey, don't turn our listeners off, okay? All right, that's fair <laughs> enough. Uh, but what I want to point out, though, is that that is being used as a reference for a uh, kind of safe harbor for bad behavior. In other words, when things go bad, the vehicle is supposed to go into a mineral risk condition and everything would be okay. According to that definition, in this particular case, if these heavy pickups were to sense an imminent head-on collision and then accelerate the rear wheels and spin them and, and become... Uh, make the vehicle spin so that it isn't said has a sideways impact, that would actually serve to protect the people in the back seat because they do better under side impact than front impact. So the idea that a vehicle in imminent impact accelerates, spins the rear wheels, goes into a 90-degree uh, spin so that it can be hit sideways is completely consistent with the wording in the SAE standard for a minimal risk condition. And so I, I just want to point that out to my friends in the industry who are listening to this, that that really needs to be corrected. There really needs to be more attention to the language in these standards. And one of the ironies is these standards are built by engineers, and engineers tend to be very imprecise about the language that they use. End of rant. <laughs> Okay, you heard it here first. Engineers are imprecise in the language they use. Uh, so I don't understand this whole truck extended crew cab thing. I mean, ride in the truck bed. I mean, that's what I did as a kid. It was like, come yeah, on, we're shows. going somewhere. Yeah, hey, wait a second now. 
I mean, come on, look, a lot I of had people ridden in truck beds. Yeah. It was, you know, not an yeah. unusual thing to as as a child in Mississippi in the 1970s and 80s to ride in a truck bed. Yeah, I um, didn't even grow up in Mississippi and I rode in a truck bed. It's just it's normal, but it's obviously now, you know, like riding without a seatbelt, it's completely unsafe. And it's, you know, riding in a truck bed is the quickest way to be ejected in an accident there is, I believe. I mean, it's. Hey. If you're going to go, you're going to go in style. Yeah. And I mean, there's that's it's 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 incredibly dangerous. And I'm sure some states now have laws passed to prevent that. And, you know, that's something I've never really looked into. What states uh, prohibit passengers riding in the truck beds? I wonder. I mean, I, every state with a seatbelt law, you would think, right? Wait, <laughs> every state because there are no seatbelts in the trunk bed. So I guess that's the easy answer. Wait, but every state doesn't have a seatbelt law. I think they do. Okay. Ah, uh, hey, look at that. So oh, there we go. We figured it New out. Hampshire, New Hampshire. New Hampshire does Hampshire, not. Right? New Hampshire is the only state uh, in support of freedom. New Hampshire does not freedom, require yeah. seatbelts. The freedom oh. to die. Wow. Well, that's a silly. Hey, so thing. I've got to throw in here a. Uh, Recollection from a friend who grew up in Nebraska. The most unsafe thing I've ever heard of uh, voluntarily being done in pickup trucks. They had a, one of their, it's a rural area. And uh, one of the things that they used to like to do is they would all go out at night and get drunk and then uh, stand in the back of a pickup truck with their firearms and then drive the pickup truck over the fields chasing jackrabbits. And shooting at the jackrabbits while they were traversing the fields at high speed, standing in the back of a pickup truck. Uh, so there are limits, I suppose, on how unsafe things can get. But that's Is it weird that that appeals to me somehow. Yeah, yeah it's uh, it's kind of a freedom thing, I guess. <laughs> it, it sounds like an amazing video game someone needs to create. Truck bed drinkers. Yeah. And All guns. Right. Yeah. Um, okay, so we were talking about uh, seatbelts being required. Now, the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety and the Highway Lost Data Institute have filed a second petition with federal regulators for a mandate for anti-lock bro- braking systems on all new motorcycles. See, I apologize. I read this at first and I was like, oh, ABS is going to be airbag systems required. And I was like, how are they going to require airbags on motorcycles? Uh, but wait, motorcycles don't have analog brakes? No, motorcycles don't have analog brakes. What? You know, a- what? Analog brakes for car. I think analog brakes were first invented for the Concorde sometimes, sometime in the 1960s. Um, and they started to show up on cars in the 70s. Um, but they were not required, despite a lot of efforts to have them required by NHTSA until 2011. No, that late, really? So big gap there. But, you know, here we are 13 years later, 12 years later. And, you know, we haven't made any, any progress on getting analog brakes on the motorcycles, which, you know, they show, according to to IHS, a pretty significant reduction in fatalities, um, about 22% rate in the reduction of fatalities in those types of crashes where ABS would be effective. So that's a... That's something that's a needs to get on, and it's it doesn't seem like it's it's really all that hard. I don't know if it's just not on their priority list. I know they're busy doing a lot of things over there right now, but this one is kind of just a slam dunk. It makes total sense. Why not have analog brakes on motorcycles? So, Michael, it sounds like you've been a little nice to NHTSA this week. I mean, you've been very oh, they're very busy. Oh, there are things going on. What's going on? You haven't any? You gotta you know. I mean, there are a lot of people over there that are working hard on this stuff. And then, you know, every four to eight years, they they get an administration plopped in on that lets them do nothing. So they have a lot of catching up to do in the next four years. And that's what they're doing right now. Okay, Um, so that's the function of politics in this whole thing. Uh, Those independent reviews by the government of autonomous vehicles get a lot different under certain administrations than they do under others. Um, you know, obviously Republican administrations are going to be more friendly to corporations. That's pretty clear. Um, and these, and, and, you know, obviously NHTSA got nothing done in, under the previous Republican administration across the board. So it, it's, you know, you, you can, you can put some of these programs into place, but, 
when there's an administration that's not willing to enforce and not willing to, you know, point out bad actors who aren't doing well, um, then what's the point of having the programs in the first place, right? There you go again with your woke agenda for safety. Uh, seriously, on the anti-lock break thing. So you're saying they weren't requiring cars till 2011, right? But, but they pretty much okay. But wasn't required. they were in a lot of cars yeah. before? And, and in fact, right now I think they're standard. in almost half of motorcycles or more, a little over half. So they're oh, in it's only the half. they're in the motorcycles. But the problem is again, like in cars, you're seeing the the better technology is going out to the people who have the means to pay for it. So right. Um, anyone buying the low-end motorcycles or the low-end vehicles right now is not getting the benefit of the safety technology that exists. Crazy, crazy, crazy. Um, all right, let's jump to a different topic. So the other day I went to Trader Joe's, I parked my car, and I come out. Somebody hit my, my fender. They dented my fender, and they didn't leave a note or anything like that. And so if you're listening and you were at the Trader Joe's in White Plains, I'm coming after you. Okay, different subject. Um, this is, uh, an article on MSN, uh, and this is something that we've talked about in the past and I want some clarity on it. This is an editorial called, why are people worried about, uh, uh, let's try that again. Why are people worried about automotive kill switch mandates? And now I know, Michael, you've talked about, well, hey, wouldn't it be great if, you know, you see some drunk driver down the road and the police can, you know, hit a switch and disable that vehicle. In that scenario, I think everyone agrees with you, but what about like, you know, I'm fighting against the deep state and they're coming after me and they're turning off my car that way. Yeah, that doesn't exist. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that everyone agrees with you on the first point, which is the real problem here. Um, people are, and sorry if there's a massive helicopter in my, my background that's completely distracting me. Yeah, oh, we don't I'm hear that. You guys haven't heard my jackhammer yet either. Wow. These are not euphemisms. Close. See, they're coming for you. It's the deep state. They're coming it's to shut you down with me. your seatbelts. So a lot of people, you know, don't want this stuff anywhere near their cars. You know, in the last couple of weeks, we've been trying to push back on Republicans in the House who are trying to get inserted into the appropriations bill, a provision that would eliminate the um, language that was in the Infrastructure Act from a couple of years back that requires NHTSA to go ahead and get anti you know alcohol sensors in vehicles to make sure that people aren't drunk driving and sensors that would actively you know or you know passively sorry detect the alcohol and prevent the vehicle from being operated um people are against that they're against um a lot of things you know this this article talks about you know it references these things as kill switches but the fact is you know the kill switch turns off the engine but it's an anti-kill switch because it's preventing people from being killed by that engine being started and driving the car down the road where it can hit people um this is something that needs to happen like it doesn't just need to happen in law enforcement where you know they could stop stolen vehicles they could um stop reckless drivers in their tracks they could stop known felons who might be you know who knows what they could stop terrorists they're just the, the list goes on for police but also you know this is the same kind of thing that we're going to see um with speed limiting technology people are highly resistant to the idea that they don't get to go as fast as they want because they paid their taxes it's their road and they can speed all that you know that kind of that kind of people, people hate the idea that somehow their car is going to be controlling them well if you're I don't hear anyone complaining when their car when their automatic emergency braking kicks in and prevents them from hitting the car in front of them, right? Um, but for some reason, these things that 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 affect speeding, speeding is one that people really don't want the technology in the vehicles that would actively slow them down to speeds that are safe. People don't want that. Um, I guess the drunk drivers out there don't want uh technology in their vehicle that's going to shut down the car when it detects alcohol in their breath. Um, but the fact is humans continue to screw up. And this is, you know, may sound like Kyle for a minute here, but humans continue to screw up. And as technology that comes out that can eliminate those screw ups, you know, eliminate uh, driving drunk and eliminate speeding, 
if humans don't get their shit together soon, that's going to happen. Um, and, and frankly, I don't think humans are going to get it together. So ex- I would expect this type of technology in the next 20 years to be in every car. Oh, it's it's definitely going to happen, and particularly if you look at the proliferation of ADAS, and um, which is automated driver assistance systems and autonomous vehicles, because if you don't have a human behind the wheel, how in the world are the police going to stop a runaway car? How are they going to force a car that's violating safety restrictions and uh, accident zone to stop and go away? Yeah, uh, how do you, if you pull up on a crash scene, how do you stop the vehicle from moving post crash and dragging the pedestrian that's under it? Right. So this is this is going to happen along with the AVs. It's simply got to happen. I don't see any alternative unless uh, you agree that the robots are rightfully going to run the world. Well, so maybe this is what happens. So you know, uh, a self driving car, whatever robo car, breaks the law. And so the police, instead of stopping that vehicle, they go to the software engineer's house and put him in handcuffs. That would be hilarious. Well, they've chased Teslas down the highway for miles and miles right. and miles while the drivers slept. And yeah. the only thing they could do is try to keep other people out of the way of this runaway car. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a ridiculous situation. But unless you've got some way for third parties to stop the vehicles, this is just what we'll all have to get used to. And I don't see that as an acceptable outcome. Yeah, I mean, I think a, a a software and hardware package that can pull vehicles over safely is a lot better than a pit maneuver. So I, I think the one example we've talked about in the past, was I think it was a couple of weeks ago, where someone was creating some technology that could sense if the driver uh, passively was drunk. Um, and I could figure out between the driver and the passenger. Now, I think something like that is great, but channeling right. my inner Kyle, I think you'd actually have to demonstrate that repeatedly over a long period of time to, sh- to, to gain public trust on that. You because have I to think, you know, the fact is when NHTSA makes its regulations, they have to make a demonstration that their tests are repeatable and can evaluate technology in that way so yes you have to and that's something that the company behind some their companies behind some of the passive alcohol detection have struggled with you know there's issues like you know you have three drunk guys in your car breathing out all sorts of fumes and right you're totally sober or is your ability to drive them home going to be impacted um and you have to you know it can't just work 50 percent of the time Right. It has to work 100% of the time or as close as possible for any type of consumer acceptance to take place in those areas. I mean, if if you're, you know, for instance, if your speed limiter technology in your car is keeping you even, you know, 10 miles per hour below the speed limit, it's not working. You know, it has to be repeatable. It has to be doing its job properly. And um, a lot of the problems in in you know getting rules and creating rules to require these technologies are ultimately dependent on making sure that these technologies are in that place where they can produce consistent outcomes. Listeners, write in, tell us what you think about these uh, these types of safety features. Really, I'm 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 curious. Um, do you want to? Uh, do do you want your car to allow you to drive drunk or someone else to drive your car drunk or you know you want a little uh, passive breathalyzer inside the system do you want to be able to uh, prevent other people from driving drunk um i don't know it seems uh, pretty simple as a question but i'm a fairly simple person so what do i know uh, i'm going to jump to somebody who's not that simple unfortunately this guy took on uh the world's wealthiest man or well one of them close to it so uh, a couple of months ago, I guess, the, there was a German newspaper that came out and had uh, they had access to a whistleblower at Tesla, and they released a whole bunch of internal documents basically saying, hey, this is a fairly dangerous company. And now the New York Times has an article about the guy who came out and did this, and who's a, a technician in Norway. He came there one of his earliest days on the job, and someone had set up a charging thing wrong started a fire this guy reached in disconnected it prevented the fire the basically prevented the car and probably more from going up in flames uh elon's like hey thanks you're a hero uh and this guy you know said hey i've got some complaints about the 
Norwegian operation here. He said on the day of the fire, there were no fire extinguishers. There was cardboard boxes and other flammable material were strewn about and employees were not briefed about where they would be working. So Elon responds, okay, please let me know if there's anything else we should do. And basically by anything else we should do, he's like, I'm going to make your life a living hell for how dare you for exposing me to safety concerns. Um, uh, the they're at my I don't know if you guys can hear that, but they're at my doors right now. Someone's banging on my windows. Uh, anyway, uh, maybe it's Elon Musk or the deep state. It Nothing. could be, but for whatever <laughs> it's worth, uh, it's not coming through your microphone. Uh, it's really happening, though. I promise it's not voices inside my head. All right, good. I'm, la- I'm glad it's not coming through. We'll notify the listeners if we see people, uh, you know, in balaclavas <laughs> behind you. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah this. Um, you know, the, 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 the whistleblower process, I, I, I don't know. I mean, this, this I, w- I would go ahead and say that the, the, the way that, you know, it's admirable that this guy, you know, did what he did in some ways. He's trying to expose safety concerns. I would suggest that it's probably better to get all of those concerns to a government official who's responsible for doing that. For instance, if you have concerns in on United on vehicles produced in the United States or import in the United States, you go to NHTSA. They have a team of lawyers who are experienced in whistleblower cases. You probably want to look at getting your own attorney um, before you enter into that process, just because you know you you want to be protected. You want to make sure that you're not compromising any agreements that could get you in trouble, like Mister Krupski is appears to be in right now. Um, but you, you probably don't just want to hand over data directly from um, your company's computer systems to a newspaper. That's, you know, a while admirable wanting to get safety information out there. That's a that's a really uh, not a good way to do it. I mean, the newspaper can publicize those things, but they can't really take any actions to enforce safety standards or that type of thing or or any other type of enforcement criminal civil over the company so um you know our advice to whistleblowers is you know visit our website click on the link get in touch with us and we will point you in the right direction if you have concerns um about problems in the you know facility you're working in whether you're worth a supplier or manufacturer we have worked with a number of whistleblowers over the years and can get them to the right people before they do things that might get them in hot water with their employer and could have some really big impacts, negative impacts on their life. Yep, yeah, no negative impacts, please. Um, we're going to jump into the, the town in a second. Freddie, you think you're ready for that? Yes, sir. Okay, Bob. good. But before we do that, Fred, what kind of car do you drive? I've got a Subaru Outback. Oh, you've got a 2020. Subaru. Oh, well, see, you know, there's a uh, article in The Guardian that says, basically, if you have a BMW, a Porsche, or a Subaru, you're most likely to cause a crash. I'm basically, not that kind of Subaru uh, driver, Anthony. Uh, you know, look, I'm reading it on the Internet right in front of me. Must be true. Says, yeah. A study of more than 400,000 UK road accidents found that when risky or aggressive maneuvers, they spell maneuvers very wrong. It's some very British thing played a part in a collision there's a significant statistical difference in driver culpability across different brands ah if you were a subaru a porsche or a bmw you were more likely to cause a problem than if you were in something called a skoda or a hyundai so i like that reputation i I like the way that reputation precedes me as i'm going down the (laughs) the road people tend to get out of the way um it's, it's nice it's kept me out of any accidents except for the damn deer apparently the deer don't read the internet damn damn dear yeah that's funny because in the u.s i don't think of subaru drivers as being aggressive i just think oh they're wearing a peruvian made hat and uh you know they're going to vermont to sniff maple syrup or something and they believe in love <laughs> yeah well we do do you, do you read the comic strip zits the no. uh <laughs> no the teenager's father is a dentist who drives a subaru just for your reference wears socks and sandals all that yeah <laughs> all right so today's what's wrong with that anyway i do that hey i had a doctor who was wearing socks and sandals and i was like i'm not gonna believe anything this guy says and i got out of his van as fast as i could Doctors uh, in <laughs> so the Tao this week uh my notes tell me the subject is narrow lanes question mark why does this work why do narrow lanes 
uh, and we actually mean road lanes, why do they make things safer? You've now entered uh, the Dow of Pause Fred. for the introduction. And no, you there saying was a brief study. pause. <laughs> <laughs> there was a study that came out that uh, stated that, in summary, that nine-foot lanes can slow traffic down and thereby make urban streets uh, safer. Nine, nine feet wide. Nine feet wide, yeah, how, how, not long. How wide is right? how wide is a is a because I mean nine feet long. That's gonna be you know I can't even put my damn my my Ram charger on that. But how wide is a is a lane normally? Well, I'm glad you asked. Hey. It turns out there's an organization called Ashto, which is American Association of State Highway and Transportation Officials. Uh, it's quite a mouthful, but mm. what they are is the body that generated. The design standard, which is called the Policy on Geometric Design of Highways and Streets. Uh, people actually read this. It's known as the Green Book or the Bible. But that's been in use for decades. And it basically mandates that uh, 10 to 12 foot lanes should be the standard on urban arterials. And so all of the urban arterials have been built in conformance with that for a very long time. What's an arterial? It's a main highway okay. or a, a major road. Got it. So it's Fifth Avenue versus 49th Street. Perfect. Thank you. Um, the idea behind that is that cars are going to drive and occasionally make mistakes. So they want to have enough of a buffer around them so that people making mistakes will be able to recover. Uh, cars are generally no more than eight feet wide and vehicles are no more than eight feet wide. Check out my Hummer. Uh, sometimes eight and a half feet. Um, so a statistical study was done of a lot of accidents in a lot of states and looked at states where they've been able to produce urban highways and sometimes uh, rural highways with widths as low as nine feet. And it turns out it's not very straightforward. They did find that the nine-foot lanes have no increase in accidents or collisions or anything else relative to the 12-foot streets, but it's very conditional. And it depends a lot on where they are, um, how they're introduced, what is the transition to go from a 12-foot lane into a 9-foot lane. And they also found that basically the most important thing that happens with a 9-foot lane is people perceive that they need to be more careful. And so they become more careful. So if you have a 9-foot lane in the middle of the wilderness, Nobody's going to pay attention to it. They'll just be annoyed. But if you have a nine-foot lane in the middle of an urban environment where you have a lot of pedestrians, trees, dogs, bicyclists, all of that, all those kind of things, they've found that there's a statistically significant uh, decrease in accidents or conversely uh, increase in safety associated with the nine-foot lanes. So why doesn't everybody just go to a nine-foot lane? Well, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, number one is it gets into land use philosophies in the cities. How do you really want to dispose of this real estate? Uh, you can put in bike lanes. You can do a lot of things if you have nine-foot lanes. But then you've got to consider the problems that go along with that. Uh, nine-foot lanes are probably not appropriate for streets that are supposed to be arterials because you've got a lot of trucks going down those. And trucks are about eight and a half feet wide. So if you're in a nine-foot lane, that's a tight squeeze. Buses are also eight and a half feet wide, another tight squeeze. Um, but it's easy to, to look superficially at the study and have a takeaway that, well, we just should build nine-foot roads. Uh, but that's not really what the study is all about. The, the study was really all about saying, since 12-foot roads are the baseline, what happens in those cities where they've actually incorporated some of these nine-foot lanes in, in the context of the urban environment and found that the rationale behind 12-foot lanes that says they're inherently safer because there's more room does not hold up under the statistical analysis of the accidents. Okay, so that's the real point of the study. Um, Vermont's been looking at nine-foot lanes since 1999. And which is long before the the basic uh, study 
associated with the uh, context-sensitive lanes called Urban Street Design Guide came out. Um, and what Vermont's experience has been that, yeah, sometimes helps, but it's a real problem if you have to do snow removal because, <laughs> you know, the uh, the blades on the on the snow plow is not really designed for nine foot lanes and you've got, you know, a lot of obstructions there. Uh, what they did find though, is that there's a really strong correlation between increased density of pedestrians and bicyclists in uh, areas where they have nine foot lanes to make the roads safer. So it's really all about the perception by the drivers in the vehicles that they need to slow down. And that's associated with proximity to people, uh, proximity to bicycles, and and other things that people can do to slow the drivers down. One of them is to have frequent intersections so that people can't, you know, really speed up a lot and they have to slow down for red lights. I think New York City has done a lot of that, Anthony, if I remember right. Yeah, but sometimes that's just a starting gun, a traffic yeah. light. Right, and there's also uh, traffic quieting things like, speed humps and you know other devices similar to that but the point of all this is that if you can do something to get people to slow down you're going to kill fewer people i think that's the real takeaway from this study okay well good thing we need a study for that uh, um yeah well, <laughs> again you know the the baseline is that this green book has has been established and in use for a long time under false premises Hmm. Uh, it was, you know, it, it, the thought was that it was inherently safer to do it that way than to do it some other way. But the study shows, no, that's not the case. What What is inherently safer is getting people to slow the hell down. That, uh, that sounds simpler um, in my mind. But anyway, we have a link to this site in our description. And it's a cool little website. As you scroll down the page, a car drives down the web page with you. It's a lot of fun. Wow, Michael's saying something brilliant and smart. I was just going to put in a pitch. It looks, you know, Johns Hopkins. I don't even know if we've mentioned who conducted the study. John Johns Hopkins conducted the study, and they that's they, Mrs. Hopkins. Like they put a lot of work into it. Hmm. Yeah, it's a it, it's it's it seems very cool. Um, but we're going to go from very cool. To, let's go to very stupid. You guys ever hear of a Ram Charger? Because <laughs> we're going to jump to a Ram Charger real. I think Real that's something they used in the Revolutionary War to get okay. cannons to work. So this is uh, Ram is uh, coming out with their EV. Uh, it's uh, <laughs> is it an oh, EV? This is, this is different. Is it, is it an EV? Exactly. That is the question. So it's an EV that has a V6 engine in it. Is that right? It's got a, a 3.6 liter V6 engine on board that powers a 130 kilowatt generator. Yeah. Ram said the end result, at least in terms of performance, is a truck with the ability to travel from zero to 60 miles per hour in 4.4 seconds. Why do you want a truck to accelerate that quickly? Why? I mean, the thing weighs a billion pounds. Why do I want a bullet that's, that's called a Ram? Like this is just, this is just a lawsuit waiting to happen. Oh, I'm sorry, Your Honor. I had no idea that a thing oh, I mean, called a Ram would kill they're people. They're just matching up the features that every other EV, you know, at least luxury EV manufacturer is putting into their vehicles. You know, Tesla's doing it. GM's doing it in the Hummer. They're putting these special warp speed buttons in that make absolutely no sense for a pickup truck. Um, but it's literally to, to attract the people who aren't using them as pickup trucks but are using them as a status symbol of how big and tough they are so if you're suffering from male pattern baldness erectile dysfunction or uh depression perhaps this is the solution you need go to a doctor not a dealer <laughs> well or just go to a different type of dealer uh but no michael this is not at all like these other cars at all because this is uh this is a lawyer's kind of this is some sort of weird little thing because it has a V6 engine on it, but the V6 engine isn't connected to the wheels, man. So it still takes gasoline. So I'm not one of those EV liberal Vermont Subaru drivers. Okay. It, I use, I use dead dinosaur juice in there, but it connects to a battery charger and the battery drives it. I'm very confused. I don't know. I wasn't hugged enough as a child. What the hell is that? What, what did they, they just design this so they can get some sort of battery credits? 
I guess they're pretending it's an electric vehicle when it really functions like a hybrid, um, not the t- traditional type of hybrid that we've seen come out of Honda and Toyota. But from a, you know, I, I think this is the kind of engine, and I've heard this in a couple of places that was used on trains way back in the day. Still, still, still used yeah. on trains. So diesel electric trains, uh, but without the battery. So. I think the difference between these and what we've become used to seeing as hybrids are that there's no direct connection between this ICE and the drive wheels. So everything goes through the electric motor. So they've got a, a big battery that provides buffer energy for the electric motor. And um, I, I don't know, this will appeal to somebody. It's a <laughs> gigantic... ICE, a gigantic battery, and a gigantic electric motor. If you're, if you're a customer for gigantism, this is your truck. <laughs> yeah, and some of the, the one story I saw, you know, it showed them with flat rear view mirrors, which is an indication that they're going to weigh as much or more than 10,000 pounds and don't have to comply with some of the standards that apply to vehicles under 10,000 pounds. So... That's certainly concerning if the the you know we're we're just going to now ignore the ten thousand pound weight limits for passenger and light trucks and just we're gonna just start selling commercial motor vehicles to people across America and calling them EVs. Now last week we talked about life cycle analysis for EVs versus hybrids. Uh, I want to point out to prospective customers for this Ram charger that you'll be replacing the tires about every ten thousand miles. And those tires are going to cost you probably well over $2,000 per set. So uh, these are very heavy cars, very heavy tires. They are not going to come cheap and enjoy the ride. So that that uh, teases something we're working on. Uh, it's coming soon about uh, weight. So, Fred, wait. My If my car weighs more, why are my tires going to wear out more? My tires are full of air. Come on. Your tires are the only thing between you and death. Um, <laughs> you so what, don't know it goes through my head <laughs> <laughs> so what happens when you put on the brakes is uh, there are what are called ablative surfaces okay which means that as you use them they f- pieces of them flake off and one of the ablative surfaces is the uh pads that go on that contact the rotor, right? So when your brakes are off, the wheel spins freely. When the brakes are on, these pads contact the rotor and pieces of them flake off in use. That's called an, an ablative surface. The other ablative surface is the tires themselves. When you, when they contact the road, when you turn right or left, when you put the brakes on, when you accelerate, uh, whenever any of these things happen, you're actually wearing off the surface of the, of the tire. And that rate of wear is proportional to the amount of pressure that's being put on the road by your tires um, and also the size of the tires. So they're, they're going to wear evenly, but bigger tires are simply going to wear more. And if there is a lot more weight, a lot more mass that they've got to support, they're going to wear out that much faster. Does that well, make sense? You lost me at a blade of surface. No, I'm kidding. We'll save that for a future towel, Fred. Yeah, I think. Where's all that stuff that's being ablated? I guess. Where's I it have asthma. It's, it's just- going into the water. It's going into the side of the road. It's going into the the weeds in the side of the road. And in fact, uh, the San Francisco Bay area has found that that's one of the major pollutants that are going into the San Francisco Bay, as all those tens of thousands of millions of pounds of rubber that are flaking off the tires are getting washed into the San Francisco Bay, major component of the uh, silt and mud that's collecting in the bay. It has a lot of consequential environmental effects as well, as you might imagine, but uh, we're not doing the environment here. We're just doing safety and stupid. And, you know, (laughs) stupid is the Ram Charger. All right. That's uh, two votes no on the Ram Charger. Michael's uh, writing a check right now for it. Uh, and with that, let's go into a recall roundup. It's a very short one this week. The first one we're going to start off with, uh, I'll give a pause for the recall roundup music. Strat the first one is, <laughs> it's not do-to-do-to-do-to-do. It's not even close to what it sounds like. I don't even remember what it sounds like, and I wrote exactly. it. Yeah, God damn it. 
Anyway, uh, the first one is not a real recall, but it's from Rivian. Uh, Rivian apologizes to its customers after infotainment bricking. So Rivian uh, sent out a little note to its customers said, hey, all. They actually wrote that. Hi, all. We made an error with the 2023.42 OTA update. A fat finger where the wrong build with the wrong security certificates was sent out. So basically, they sent out the wrong software and saying, being like, uh, hey, our systems failed entirely. They're like, it was a fat finger. Isn't that adorable? You bricked my car. Oh, it wasn't over. It was a, my, I have a chubby fingers. What kind of nonsense talk is that? I just spent $100,000 on this truck. I, okay, listeners at home, I, I would never do that. My wife would murder me. Um, and I wouldn't know where to put it, but come on, a fat finger. That's the part that bothers me the most. I know, Michael, something else bothers you about this. Well, no, it's actually something that doesn't bother me about this, but it's it's the fact that, you know, they've got a problem that basically shuts down their infotainment system because it doesn't have the proper secure, security certificates. Um, but even though the infotainment system is still shut down, all the rest of the vehicle systems are still operating, including our you know favorite topic on Recall Roundup, the, the rear view camera um the rear view camera the blinkers everything else and every it appears everything that is required to work to comply with motor vehicle safety standards is continue to work so it shows you know it suggests to me maybe this isn't the case but it suggests that rivian has actually separated those systems which is something we've been um advocating for is that you know we don't want infotainment crap interfering with safety all right, good job. Never, no one's ever said Rivian people are dumb. No, Fred, but people have <laughs> said that they're well healed because they got to fix the cars from fix the trucks from time to time. That's true. Good to have a Rivian owner as a friend, I guess. I guess so. Um, all right, uh, our uh, our only other recall this week is a uh, is a little company called Tesla. 159 vehicles, the 2021 to 2023 Tesla Model S. Uh, based on the variance in design of the round steering wheel and the yoke steering wheel, a different driver airbag is designed for each steering wheel. Um, and basically, I guess we didn't put the right airbag in. Yeah, that's basically it. And, 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 you know, this is just one more safety issue that's arisen out of the yoke steering wheels. I think in one case they were popping off or something was happening. And that doesn't even go into the fact that humans are not trained to operate vehicles with yoke steering wheels and just putting them out into your cars raises a lot of safety concerns for us it's just one in a series of, of gimmicks that tesla has continued to put out on its vehicles to make them seem cool to all the techies out there but in fact raise pretty significant safety issues in this case you know this is pretty much a screw up in the factory putting the wrong airbags into these yoke steering wheel um vehicles but you know this is a problem that never had to happen if you weren't you know pursuing a a uh yoke steering wheel in the first place so it's annoying in many respects Listeners, how do you like your steering wheels? Sunny side up? <laughs> Yoke steering wheel. I made an egg joke. Hey, go to autosafety.org. Click on donate. It's getting that time of year. Tax. It's tax deductible, that donation. I'm not in the tax attorney, but I'm pretty sure that's correct. Because if not, Michael would have told me no. And if no. you donate today, Anthony promises he'll never tell another dad joke. Oh, I uh, it's, uh, don't And if you me. donate today. We'll never have Barry White coming in here and saying Piggly Wiggly again. Uh, uh, wait, no, look, I, I think our most important things are, okay, we want some GM cruise engineers, you know, to reach out, current, former, whatever. Uh, let us know what's going on. Michael's protected whistleblowers in the past, right? Yes, he's yeah. nodding his head. Uh, tell us about that. Tell us how much you would prefer Fred's uh, head cold voice to his uh, regular speaking voice and why he's such a dangerous driver in his Subaru. And then um, tell us if your favorite Peter Gabriel album was called Ablative Surface. And uh, is that how did I said Ablative? Is that right? Ablative. Yeah, that's Ob a good ablative. word. Yeah. All right. Ablative Surface. Maybe that's what I'll name this episode. And with that, I, uh, what? No, go ahead. I once had somebody ask me if finite, element, um, finite elements could include an ablative module in their stress analysis 
just so you know how arcane it can get. But that has nothing to do with anything. I'll let it go. That went uh-huh. straight over my head. Hey, and if uh, you need some entertainment at parties, Fred's available. Uh-huh. I live in that space <laughs> that went right over your head, and, and Michael. That's a, that's a terrible place to be. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks uh, so much, listeners. Uh, Till uh, next week. We're back next week, right? Yes, we are. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. What kind of hand signals were those? I, I, I like to do that because like, sometimes it's like, For more information, visit www.autosafety.org.